0: Okay, ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the Dana Buckler Show. My name is Dana and I am joined by writer, director, Jim Hemphill. Jim, how are you today? I'm great. How are you? I'm doing good. Listen, I I was just kind of thinking about this uh, before we started recording. We first spoke a little over five years ago and you've been the most frequent guest on this podcast and we have covered a lot of different topics and we've covered a lot of different movies and, you know, we've been doing our icon series looking at directors and actors. But we met because you had just wrapped up production on a film and I had you on the show back in November of 2014, so almost five years ago, and we were discussing The Trouble with the Truth. And during that conversation, we we spoke at great length about the first feature film that you made, Bad Reputation. And one of the reasons why I wanted to have you on the show today is because just recently, Bad Reputation received a Blu-ray release and we're going to spend some time talking about that. So, Again, welcome back. It's great to have you on here. And for listeners that haven't listened to our conversation before, can you just briefly talk about what the 90s was like for you and sort of just bring us into the decision to make Bad Reputation and how you got that project off the ground?
1: Sure, boy. The 90s for me. I graduated from film school in, I guess, 1995. I graduated from uh, USC and spent the next eight years or so trying to figure out how to get a movie made and i kind of kicked around the industry in different random jobs mostly having to do with uh sort of the development part of the world i I worked a lot as a script reader for different companies and for different directors including uh david fincher i worked for a little while for him he had a company with a guy named uh Art Linson, who had produced Fight Club, and after Fight Club, they were looking for more things to do together, and so I was reading sort of books for them, and uh, and stuff like that, and then writing my own scripts, trying to get them off the ground, and uh, not really having a lot of luck with anything, except that I sort of fell into, fell into the exploitation world. I was sort of, and my first writing jobs were on, I don't even know if these still exist anymore, but back in the 90s. There was a big market in like Cinemax and uh, Showtime for these kind of late night erotic movies. And uh, I wrote a few of those. That was kind of my first, the first time anybody paid me to write anything. But I sort of spun my wheels a lot, trying to get movies going and not really having a clue how to. And somewhere around 2003-ish maybe, 2003 or early 2004 i don't remember exactly when i was talking with a cinematographer friend of mine who said well if uh, if you can write a really really low budget horror movie i know a guy who who makes them he knew this guy who kind of made really 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 dirt cheap uh low budget horror films and exploitation films and things like that and at the time i was really obsessed with the movie i spit on your grave which uh, i don't know how you know i'm not sure how if that movie's mythology has continued to be as kind of prominent now as it was when I was a kid. But when I was a kid in the 80s, I Spit on Your Grave was this kind of very notorious horror movie that I actually knew of many, many years before I ever actually saw the movie. I mean, when I was a kid, I knew of it primarily through... Gene Siskel and Roger Ebert's reviews. Um, and again, I'm sort of, I'm 40, how old am I? What year is this? 2019? I'm, 40, I'm 47 years old. So I don't know if. Younger listeners, I don't know if people who are in their 30s or younger, uh, I, I don't know if they're even aware anymore of how huge Siskel and Ebert were. But when I was a kid, they had a weekly TV show that was the place you would go. If you were a movie fan, That was you watched that show every week. They would review four or five new releases and show clips. And it was a great way to kind of stay on top of everything that was out there, whether you agreed with what Siskel and Ebert were saying or not. They hated I Spit on Your Grave. I Spit on Your Grave came out. Originally, it was released in 1978 under the title Day of the Woman. And then it came out. It didn't really do that well. And then about two years later, they re-released it, As I Spit on Your Grave. And it's essentially a, a rape revenge movie. It's a movie about a writer from new york who goes to spend a summer out in the country uh where she plans on working on like a so i can't remember if she's going to finish a book or what but she goes out there to write, ends up getting gang raped by these three local guys and then uh after she recovers takes her revenge by killing them off one by one in extremely brutal ways and it's it's basically this movie that's and that's the simple description of it but it's essentially a kind of um city versus the country movie kind of like Deliverance or Southern Comfort or something like that. I guess, well, I guess more Deliverance Southern Comfort is really a city versus country movie, but anyway, I spit on your grave. When I was a kid, Siskel and Ebert, I mean, they hated this movie. They thought it was just the most vile, repugnant thing they'd ever seen, and they basically killed this guy's career who made it, a uh, director named Mir Zarki, and he made one movie after it a few years later that called Don't Mess With My Sister that kind of came and went, and nobody really ever saw it, but but they just, just made it a mission in life to destroy I Spit on Your Grave. They were so offended by it. And, and when I was a kid, you know, the VHS box, um, which sort of had this, woman, sort of a woman, you couldn't see her face, but it was like, I think she was carrying a knife and her clothes were kind of ripped up. And uh, the rumor, which I've never confirmed, is that the model that was used for the box cover was not the woman in the movie, but but actually a young Demi Moore. And I don't know if that's true or if that's just an urban legend. But anyways, a kid, I was always kind of like, scared of and fascinated by i spent on your grave because it was so notorious as like this is the most disturbing disgusting movie ever made And but i never saw it until i got to college and then somewhere in sometime in college i rented it when it came out on i don't remember if it was I, well i guess maybe laserdisc or something by the time i by the time i got around to seeing it. i don't remember how i actually came to it but when i watched it i was by the time i watched it it had kind of garnered its reputation had been somewhat corrected by people like there's an author named carol clover who's a feminist film critic who wrote this great book called men women and chainsaws and she and some other feminist film critics had kind of reclaimed i spit on your grave and uh not necessarily wholeheartedly celebrating it but they sort of came out and said, well, there's some more interesting things going on here than it got credit for initially in its release. And so after reading what some of those critics had uh, had written about it and and also what Joe Bob Briggs said about it, because he made the, all kinds of claims for it being one of the greatest movies ever made, things like that, I finally caught up with it and did think it was an exceptionally disturbing movie, but also was kind of amazed that Siskel and Eber could ever have seen it as a film that was in any way a kind of incitement to violence or rape or anything like that i mean i think you would have to be clinically insane to watch that movie and think that you were supposed to be your identification figure we're supposed to be the rapist so anyway i saw i when i finally saw it i thought it was a really interesting disturbing unsettling but very effective movie and it it always kind of stuck in my head and i and i became again sort of obsessed with it and so around the time when i was uh and met with this guy who made these little bunch of horror movies. I was And I was also, I've also my entire life been obsessed with Brian De Palma. So I kind of came up with this idea when I met with this guy, and he asked me if there was anything I could make cheap. I kind of came up with this idea of I Spit on Your Grave in high school that was sort of I Spit on Your Grave meets Carrie because another thing that I liked about uh, Carrie that was probably very influential on Bad Reputation was I always liked the fact that in Carrie, it was sort of like the original Frankenstein in that the lead character was the victim the monster and the heroine all in the same movie and so i kind of wanted to do a movie like that i wanted to do a movie with a character like that and sort of follow the structure of i spit on your grave where she's the first half of the movie is kind of her being put upon and then the second half is the her getting her revenge and so i sort of pitched that idea to this guy i don't know where i came up with i don't remember where i came up with the title bad reputation but uh but I pitched the idea to this guy, and he went for it. And so I wrote it really quickly. I wrote it in about three weeks, which I don't think I've written anything as quickly since. But I was able to do it because I sort of had Carrie and I Spin on Your Grave. In my mind as these templates, also with weirdly with a dash of things like, Like she's all that and pretty in pink. I mean, I kind of when you make your first movie, I think there's a tendency to want to do it in this kind of mad rush where you try to cram everything you like into one movie because you never you never know if you're going to do it again. And also, you know, you've kind of been waiting so long to do it. I mean, by the time I directed Bad Reputation, I was 33, maybe something like that. I was in my early 30s and I've been wanting to make movies my whole life. So it's kind of a weird hodgepodge of you know, it's what you get, I suppose, if you combine Brian De Palma and Spit on Your Grave and John Hughes all in the same movie. In fact, somebody had a great when it showed at the Chicago Horror Film Festival somebody came up to me afterwards and said you should call that movie I Spit on John Hughes Grave which I thought was (laughs) a very accurate summation of everything I'd been kind of thinking about uh anyway very long answer to your question but i wrote it in a few weeks and then i ended up sort of having a falling out with the guy who initially was going to finance it because i mean he he was making these things really really cheap i mean he wanted to make the movie for for three thousand dollars which actually today you could do because the technology has you know gotten to the point where you could shoot it on your phone and all that kind of stuff but in 2004 which is i think i think i shot it in the summer of 2004 at that time you know high def was extremely expensive i mean that was still a point when the only people who were shooting you know feature films in high def were guys like george lucas and michael mann and and you know maybe i don't think zodiac had come out yet so not even david fincher but basically high def was very expensive so we shot on something uh a format called mini dv that i'm Sure, it never gets used anymore. But you know, mini DV, which is basically like standard video, it doesn't look. It looks about a third as good as what you could shoot on your phone now. And we had to do it with like a bulky camera, and it was not cheap. I mean, it wasn't cheap. You know, the the drive space wasn't cheap. I mean, you had to have again. You could edit this movie today on your laptop. Back then, that was impossible. You needed a big Mac Pro, and you needed a lot of drive space and all those kinds of things. So, so three thousand dollars to make the movie was kind of impossible. I ended up making. So I ended, but I ended up. So I ended up basically sort of parting ways with this guy and hitting up my dad to invest in the movie. And and then we made it for around ten grand, which, you know, is still not a lot of money to make a feature film with. And it's still a movie that I look at now and, you know, I have very ambivalent feelings about it. And I talk about this on the commentary track on the Blu-ray that I, you know, I have kind of a love-hate relationship with the movie. Because on the one hand, I, in some ways, I don't think... Writing wise, it's my favorite thing I ever did. I mean, I actually like it—the screenplay a lot more than I like um, *Trouble with the Truth* or anything else I've done. But it was my my ambitions for it so outstripped my resources that, and it, it's hard for me to watch now because I think it looks so crappy. And again, part of that was just the technology at the time. It was really hard to make a good looking movie for ten thousand dollars. Now, if I had ten thousand dollars, I could, and I did that movie the same way. It would look. 10 times better, both because of I'm more experienced and also just because, again, the technology has gotten so much better. You can shoot on, you know, your phone has higher resolution and, and tools that back then were just totally uh, inaccessible. Anyway, that's a very long-winded way of
0: getting around to how it all got started. But that was kind of the the origin story. couple questions here. So the first one, just a real quick, just to bring it back to something you said about Cisco and Ebert. And then I've got a, a ton of questions about the movie itself. Did you identify more with Roger Ebert or... Gene Siskel, or was it just sort of down the line? Sometimes you agreed with them, sometimes you disagreed. But did you see, tend to favor one more over the other as far as their opinions go?
1: Well, I was definitely always more of a Roger Ebert guy, just because I felt like Ebert was more of a serious film scholar. I mean, he, you know, he wrote books, he went around to film festivals, I and mean, I don't think Gene Siskel barely ever left Chicago if he could help it. Um, and granted, Siskel had a, a funny answer to that issue. I mean, one, at one point, Roger Ebert kind of, uh, in, you know, was Criticizing him for never going to film festivals and and things like that, and Siskel said, "You know, Roger, those things are transportable, meaning that the movies (laughs) did eventually they could make their way to Chicago." You know, but I did think I thought Ebert was certainly better, certainly a better writer. I mean, I I grew up in Chicago in what was, in my opinion, a golden age of film criticism, uh, a golden age and a golden place. Because when I grew up in Chicago, you had Ebert writing for the Chicago Sun Times, in the Chicago Tribune, you had. Gene Siskel was doing this kind of little column called Gene's Flick Picks or something like that. But then the main critic in the Chicago Tribune was a guy named Dave Kerr, who now is uh, runs the Museum of Modern Arts Film Program in New York. But he was a, a really fantastic film critic. And then you had Jonathan Rosenbaum, who I think is the greatest film critic who's ever lived, writing for the Chicago Reader. So I was growing up reading all those guys. And Ebert was definitely a better writer. I remember Ebert really hated Blue Velvet, and Siskel loved it. And I was definitely more on the Siskel side of that component. I mean, Ebert was a funny guy in that, and, and I *Spend Your Grave* is a perfect example, in that he could sort of every once in a while he get very moralistic about movies. And *Blue Velvet* was, was one, and *I Spend Your Grave* was another one. And he he could he could really get on this sort of weird moral high horse, which is strange from the guy who wrote *Beyond the Valley yeah. of the Dolls*, which is one of the most <laughs> offensive movies ever made, and and one of the best. I mean, it's a great movie. I love *Beyond the Valley of the Dolls*, but I mean *Beyond the Valley of the Dolls* is an a, an exercise in bad taste. And it's interesting also because Ebert, you know, he was a one of the only critical champions of Wes Craven's Last House on the Left, which is a movie that has a lot in common with I Spit on Your Grave, and that was uh, also an influence on Bad Reputation. And Heber was a big champion of that movie. But then, then he, again, it's very weird how he would kind of lash out at these films like I Spit on Your Grave and Blue Velvet that he thought somehow were kind of morally bankrupt. And Siskel wasn't quite as bad about that, although Siskel had his own weird things. Like Siskel was, you couldn't, Kill a kid in a movie, or Siskel was going to hate it. For you know, he. So they both had these weird things, and I guess we all do. I guess we all have you know inconsistencies in terms of what offends us and what doesn't. But uh, I was definitely more more of an Ebert guy. But I liked you know, I loved both of them. I loved their show, and I miss it. I really think it's. I don't think there's anything like it now. I mean, with all of the. With all the film criticism we have and all the podcasts and everything like that there was something about that that show just hit the like I said it hit the sweet spot of being smart but accessible film commentary that was on a weekly basis and that kind of everybody watched i mean now you've got you know uh, a lot of great film websites and podcasts and things like that but it's so much more I mean, like the media landscape in general, it's just so much more spread out. You know, it's not you, 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 everybody's listening to different
0: things and reading different things. And there was a sort
1: of communal aspect to the fact that if you were a movie fan, you always watched Cisco and Ebert, and I, and I kind of, uh, I kind of missed that.
0: You know, it's interesting. You talk about Ebert taking the, the sort of the moral high ground. I, I remember. Um, and what's great, just just for listeners out there, you can go on YouTube and you can find almost every single episode of Cisco and Ebert at the movies. I find myself going into three or four hour binges on a you know a lazy Saturday afternoon, just watching all of those reviews. And what's interesting is, you know, they really were tough on films. So, the couple ones in my mind that stick out, Friday the 13th part four, the final chapter, they just viscerated that film. Nightmare on Elm Street part three. So, it's interesting you say that because they would champion so many other films that you would be like, well, why do you have a problem with Elm Street and Friday the 13th? It was really interesting.
1: Well, they loved Rob Zombie's The Devil's Rejected anyway. I don't remember if Siskel was still alive or if that was Roper who reviewed that one with the I think it was Siskel and Ebert. I mean, I know Ebert liked doubles Rejects, you know. So, I mean, yeah. Well, they were very – and granted, here's the thing about being a film critic. Um, and, and I don't think of myself as a, as a film critic. I think of myself as more of like a film historian. But I did work as a film critic for a brief period of time, I guess twice in my life. And both times I, I was completely miserable because it, it kind of killed my love of movies having to comment on everything and i think what happened with Cisco and ebert with movies like friday 13th 4 and nightmare on street 3 and things like that you got to remember the early 80s i mean the glut of slasher movies was insane i mean they were releasing so many of those things and sisco and ebert you know they loved halloween they were among the early champions of that movie but after Halloween, they I think they got really burnt out on all the rip-offs. Because after Halloween, I mean, you just had one slasher. There, there was a period from about 78 to 80, I don't know, 82, 83, something like that, where it was just a nonstop deluge of slasher movies. And I think, you know, even and Siskel having to, see, and critics in general, I think seeing all of them, they all sort of blended into into each other. And I think there was a kind of resentment at having to watch all of them. And, you know, I... I it it did it did lead to them really in some cases being very unfair but and also i think though some of it's just an age thing like friday the 13th the final chapter is a movie that i'm a big fan of i don't know if i would be a big fan of it if i saw it at 34 instead of 13. Right, right. So it's hard, it's always hard to say that kind of stuff. But, but, but it is, yeah, speaking to the YouTube thing, I, it is fun to go back and look at their old reviews. I mean, one of my dreams is to have enough time. And one of these is I would love to sit and take a few weeks or months or however long it would take. And, I'd love to watch all the Siskel and shows from the beginning and just like in a row and see from 1977 or 78 or whenever it was they started. The first one I remember watching was the episode they reviewed Animal House on. So that was 78. I don't know how long they had been doing it before then. But I would love to just go through and watch... 20 years worth of 25 years, whatever it is worth of those things and kind of get a sense of, you know, 25 years of film history through the eyes of, of Siskel and Ebert. And, and I would, I would really recommend to people two, two that I would really recommend watching are actually after Siskel died, Ebert, you know, he would kind of have guest critics and then he had Richard Roper do it with him for a while. But there are two really great episodes I would recommend people look for on YouTube. One is Ebert and Martin Scorsese did a best of the 90s episode. They each picked their 10 favorite movies of the 1990s. And that's a great episode. And also in 1999, Ebert and Bogdanovich did a special called If We Picked the Oscars, where it's Ebert and Peter Bogdanovich uh, choosing their favorite their choices for the Oscars that year. And those are both really, really fun episodes for film buffs to watch anyway, getting getting way off
0: topic but no no uh, no it's great listen i'm sure we could spend a couple hours just talking about the the two of them because you know much like you i'm uh, i'm a few years younger than you but i am in my 40s as well so i i certainly remember saturday i don't know it was a syndicated show but certainly yeah. growing up in canada it was on saturday mornings where I, where i lived and it was something i watched religiously week in and week out i remember when gene siskel passed away shortly thereafter the the Academy Awards, I remember when they did the In in Memoriam and he wasn't featured on there. And I I believe it was Whoopi Goldberg who mentioned that and gave a big, gave a thumbs up, which, Mm -hmm. which I remember was really touching. And I remember that very well. So, you mentioned that, you know, you had a falling out with this gentleman who was known for financing extremely inexpensive horror films. In 2019 a $3,000 film could very easily find its way onto a ton of streaming platforms. I mean, there's a ton of them now. In 2004, a $3,000 very low budget horror film, was that something that was relatively easy to get distributed on DVD? And you know, was it, you know, we all talk about for younger listeners, there used to be a term called straight to video, which where there was a whole market for just straight to video. Was that still a pretty relevant thing in 2004? Because that's just a few years before the whole video on demand sort of exploded. What are your thoughts about that time period?
1: Yeah, well, the way with this guy, you know, I ended up being very glad I did the movie the way I did. Because I think with him making these $3,000 movies, they weren't necessarily getting great releases they weren't necessarily showing up in blockbuster video or hollywood video which at the time those were kind of the two big video store chains uh neither of which exists anymore but they they, they were sort of the big way those straight to video movies you're talking about would get seen and this guy's model was more he was kind of selling them over the internet at convention like horror conventions and things like that and so you know so he could make his three thousand dollars back that way but um when i finally when i made it on my own and ultimately got a distributor for it we did get it into all the blockbuster videos and it, we were kind of lucky in that it was the last we were kind of the last gasp of that because like you say it was it was not long before streaming uh became a thing i don't really remember uh, my memory is so hazy on actual dates and years and i don't remember exactly when netflix started streaming and itunes and all that but in the movie, I mean, here's the thing the movie came out, so we shot it in the summer of 2004. I basically finished it because I edited the movie in my kitchen on a big Mac. And I think I finished editing somewhere around probably a year later, like summer of 2005. And then we kind of bounced around the horror film festival circuit for a while, and it didn't come out on DVD until August of 2007. And when it came out in August of 2007, it was at the video, the DVD market, and the, certainly the home video stores, they were kind of starting to decline probably. Like, had I made the movie a few years later, Uh, It would have been a streaming thing. And now, I mean, absolutely, if you made a movie for $3,000 or even $10,000, that's a horror movie, uh, you could get your money back now with, you know, just throwing it up on Amazon Prime. And then there's, you know, Tubi and Pluto TV and Roku. There's a gazillion of, you know, now the big thing for low budget movies is, I think, going to be... You know, AVOD advertiser supported video yeah. on demand. Um, you know, was there was VOD and then there was SVOD subscription video on demand, which is like you know Amazon Prime and Netflix and things like that. And I think the future for low budget filmmakers now is is going to be AVOD. But again, I'm mean, kind of getting off topic. But but I feel like I, with bad reputation, I kind of managed to squeak in just under the wire where there was still a uh,
0: a low budget horror movie could kind of find an audience on. Uh, On DVD. All right, so I've got two questions for you. The first one is Can you give the synopsis of the film without spoiling it? Now, I've seen it a few times, but again, we're working on the assumption that a lot of the people listening have not seen the movie yet. So, what is the synopsis of Bad Reputation? And then I've got a a, probably a very lengthy follow up question to that. So, I'll let you answer the first one.
1: The sort of uh, short version I can give of the synopsis is it's about a A teenage girl, Michelle, who's sort of from a working class or poorer background, uh, goes to a school where she's a little bit the outcast, ends up uh, catching the attention somehow of one of the popular boys who's sort of part of a member of like the sort of richer uh, popular clique, gets invited to a party by him, thinking it's kind of uh, her, you know, she's all that pretty in pink moment or whatever. But in fact, uh, it's more Closer to something like Carrie, where this guy and his friends have some very uh, nefarious evil plans for her. And I guess, you know, me describing I Spit on Your Grave kind of gives away... That she is sexually assaulted by these guys, and at that point, then she, you know, to, to add insult to injury, the girls at the school kind of start giving her reputation as being the school slut, and she ends up sort of figuring out a way to turn this to her advantage to get revenge on all the people who have have made her life miserable. And that's kind of a sort of broad strokes description of the the script. I mean, it, it kind of you know it, it grew out of again I was talking about cinematic influences, but it also, in a weird way. You even though the movie is very heightened and you know artificial in certain ways, I mean it's it's supposed to be again kind of like a the Apollo movie or a Paul Verhoeven movie. Although you wouldn't necessarily get those influences because the movie is so much more technically ragged than what they do. But it kind of I kind of wanted it to have that sort of heightened style, and yet it did grow out of the real world in a way. I mean, at the time I made it, there was this. There were a lot of cases, like there was this sort of um, news story where I live, like a little south of us in Orange County, there had been, this girl was sexually assaulted at a party by these rich kids, including like the son of the sheriff, and they they videotaped it, and uh, the guys did end up getting convicted, going to jail eventually, after like an appeal or some, or after, I don't remember what happened, there were like a couple of trials, the first time it looked like they were all going to get off, even though there was this videotaped testimony, or this videotaped evidence. And part of the way they got off was to paint this girl as like she was like the drunk slut and all that kind of stuff. And, and I was reading a lot of kind of social um, study books at the time like there was this book by emily white called fast girls and i was reading like another book i think it was called queen bees and wannabes that was like the source actually for the movie mean girls and i was reading a lot of these books sort of about a lot of double standards in terms of uh gender and sexuality and things like that you know all of which unfortunately you know is still relevant today and it kind of went into this like booyah base in my head of what the movie was going to be so the movie was kind of this weird combination of like i i i sort of saw the rape revenge it's not really a genre but there's this whole tradition of rape revenge movies that's like last house on the left i spit on your grave lipstick i mean in a sense you know kill bill has elements of it uh the accused is sort of a mainstream rape revenge movie although it's less the revenge but anyway there's this i saw in that formula kind of a way to all these things that i was interested in and that was that'll kind of fed into it as well.
0: All right. So, I'm going to get into a little bit of technical jargon here for the listeners. So, just bear with me for a moment because and I do want to invite listeners to go back and listen to the episode. It's still on the main feed where Jim and I talk a little bit about the casting and how many, you know, how many days the shoot was and shooting locations and that episode is very much still available. So, I certainly encourage the listeners to check that out. But there's, you know, five years later, I understand filmmaking a little bit better. So, I just have a a couple more technical questions about the film, especially knowing that you worked on what you said was roughly about a $10,000 budget. So, the first question is, what things did you learn in film school that you were able to apply to the production of this film? And what were some things that you had to learn on the fly while making this movie?
1: I think from film school, I, you know, that probably was influential more in terms of the kind of film history aspect of it, of knowing what traditions to draw from, knowing to sort of draw from De Palma and Hitchcock. And again, I'm not comparing myself to these guys by any means. I mean, it's, uh, it's nowhere near as assured as what they do. But sort of, you know, learning from Hitchcock how to kind of try to put the audience in the main character's point of view and things like that. I mean, that all probably came from film school, In terms of what I had to learn on the fly, I mean, when I was in film school, there was very little instruction in terms of working with actors. And I don't know if that's changed. But I think that was sort of the big, the the one big weakness of film school to me was they really didn't make you understand what, what actors were going through. And so I think I had to, I really didn't have a clue. If an actor wasn't giving me what I wanted, I didn't really have a clue how to get it from them, or how to talk to them about it. Um, and that was something that I had to kind of learn as I went. And I think I was probably to a certain degree, looking back, I think I was probably kind of insensitive to the needs of the actors in a way. I mean, I think I didn't understand how much I was asking of them and that what a difficult movie this was. And and I think, I mean, I think I'm very happy with most of the performances in the movie. But I would say that's something I had to learn. I, you know, and I, and I learned it over the course of, Two movies, because the the interesting thing about Bad Reputation and Trouble with the Truth, they're both very different movies in a lot of ways, but especially they're different in terms of the level of experience of the actors. You know, Bad Reputation, most of the people in it, it, it was their first movie or certainly their first movie with parts that big. And Trouble with the Truth, I made it with John Shea and Leah Thompson, both of whom had been making movies for 30 years. And I think the combination of doing those two movies and working with those people, I kind of learned on the job how to talk to actors and how to talk to actors at different levels. But that was something that I had to learn. And I think the biggest thing I had to learn on Bad Reputation, I mean, it was a nightmare in terms really most of the the, the difficulties came in post-production because I edited the movie myself and had no idea what I was doing. And the just and this, I think, is still something that's difficult you know, digital technology has not simplified things the way that it should, in my mind, because there's so many different workflows and different ways of, you know, so many different formats. And and your head can kind of spin thinking about shooting, you know, 2k versus 4k versus 8k versus uh, raw versus mastering for HDR or standard, uh, it, there's a gazillion different factors that come into it. And if you make one, you know, if you input, one wrong thing you can screw up your entire post i mean you know i edited my entire movie at the wrong frame rate (laughs) it it created massive headaches um that i was still dealing with this year when you know when we to put the movie out on blu-ray uh we kind of had to go through and you know up res it and it 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 had a million glitches that were still there from when i edited this movie 14 years ago and so you know i think the, the biggest thing i learned was not to uh, just jump in and do things without fully researching what you were doing first. I mean, I, I, I think, you know, I probably could have saved myself years of headache had I been a little done my homework a little bit more in terms of just the technical side of the editing and ingesting material into the computer and how to how to input it and output it and all that kind of stuff. I could I could say, literally save myself years of work and i done more research on the front end of that.
0: Well, and that's the question I have for you because you said, what what year did you graduate film school? 95. Okay. So, you're still talking, you know, I had Phil Juano on last year to talk about his experiences in film school and this would have been the early 80s. But I've got to assume, and correct me if I'm wrong, that your your stint in film school is two years, correct?
1: Well, actually, I went for four years, four years. as an undergrad and then two years for grad
0: school. Okay. So, so total six. six years. You're still working with film, correct? Yeah. I mean, is is there even whispers of digital video? Is that even a thing when you're in film school? Because the reason I ask this is, you know, you flash forward to 2004, 2005, you're learning a new technology as well as everyone else. I mean, this wasn't something I imagine in film school now. That is a prerequisite learning how to edit digitally. You were still using, what are those editing machines called? The big ones?
1: Yeah, we were using like Steenbeck's and chem, things like that when I was in film school. And no, that's a great point. I mean, probably, you know, these lessons I learned probably are irrelevant to people. People going to film school now probably learn all this stuff. But I, uh, when I was in film school, no, digital, it was not even a thought in our heads. We did everything on film. And to the point that, I mean, here's how fast this all changed. I had a movie I was going to direct in early 1999 that fell through, but it was a movie it was a movie called Adult Pictures that was sort of a, a, like, romantic comedy set in the porn industry. I always kind of describe it as about night boogie nights. And it was a movie that kind of fell – the financing fell apart a few weeks before we, were, we started shooting. But that would have been my first movie. And we were working on that. We were in pre-production on that in early 1999. And my cinematographer on it, a woman who I went to film school with, she uh, wanted to shoot digital. And so I thought, okay, like, for this, that makes sense, like, that kind of aesthetic. And – but we – Thought, like people did not think of it as a real movie because we were shooting digital and we would, when we were auditioning actors and trying to explain to them what it was, like they thought it was not real because it was digital. Like they thought this was a weird thing. And this was, and we would keep saying, and we were saying to them, you know, Oh, there's this movie coming out in a few months called the Blair witch project that was it's and it shot some shot on video or whatever. But like, In the pre, you know, this was a few months, we were in pre-production a few months before both Blair Witch Project and Phantom Menace, which obviously was shot digitally. uh, Neither of those had come out yet. And so we were thought of as this was the weirdest idea in the world to shoot a feature film digitally. That was that was spring of 1999. So 20 years ago, which I guess – I mean 20 years is a is – it's sort of a long time, but it's sort of not when you think about how drastically everything has shifted, you know, to the point that, that – and even bad reputation. I mean, you know, even – Five, six years later, 2005, that being a shot on video movie was still, you know, still considered like kind of low rent or whatever. I mean, it was you know, so it's, it's really only been in the last 15 years or so that there's been this drastic upheaval where now, I mean, now you're in the exception if you if you shoot on film and certainly if you edit on film, I don't know if anybody edits on film anymore. I know Spielberg was kind of one of the last holdouts who still made his editor's Edit on film, and I know uh, Tim Robbins was too, but I don't. I don't know if anyone does, you know, edits on film, and certainly not a ton of people shoot on film. So it was, it was, a, it's, it's amazing how quickly it's changed. And I, um, you know, to me, there's pros and cons to both. I mean, I hated. A lot of aspects of shooting on film when I was in film school. And certainly, um, you know, as much as I complained about the headaches I had in post on Bad Reputation, you know, they're nothing compared to the headaches you would have if you wanted to do a dissolve or a fade on film, you had to run it through an optical printer, which I mean, I can't even describe to you the agony that was using one of these machines i mean you would come out covered in chemicals and it was a total crap shoot whether or not the fade or the dissolve would even work and now you can do it in about you know 30 seconds on your laptop i mean for for bad reputation it's funny when we you know when we remastered it for blu-ray i didn't really make any changes because I'm, I'm very opposed to filmmakers altering their work years later uh because they can i don't i didn't like it when george lucas did the digital shit to the first star wars movies i i don't like you know i i i just i'm not a fan of to, to me the movie uh, to me when you make a movie it's not just a movie it's a a document of, of where you were a filmmaker time where the technology was at that time and so you really shouldn't you should leave it alone even if you know i mean i know bad reputation if i wanted to play with it digitally i could um you know, I could make it infinitely better, but I, I sort of didn't want to do that. And the only thing I did do is there's been um, there was a glitch in it that has bothered me for 15 years, which is in the opening s- credit sequence. For some reason, one of the titles kind of um, flashes on and off for like a frame for no reason and then and then comes in the way it's supposed to. And I uh, that has driven me nuts for years, and I could never fix it. And then finally, before we put it with the Blu-ray, I just put it into DaVinci Resolve and looked at a YouTube tutorial, and in about 25 minutes figured out how to fix this frame that had been bothering me for over a decade. And you know, so that's the wonderful thing about. Digital technology, but you know, there's also. I mean, I, I you know, I'm not, I'm not, I'm neither one of these purists. Like, I'm not a purist like T- Tarantino, who thinks that if it's not shot on film and not projected on film, it's somehow not a real movie. And neither am I one of these somebody like, say, you know, Steven Soderbergh or William Friedkin, who basically, are, you know, are kind of ready for all film cameras to be, you know, burned in a scrap heap. But that's all other issue. But uh, but you're right that I think. Young filmmakers now probably a lot of the things that gave me headaches they probably come out of film school just knowing automatically how to do it.
0: Something I wanted to touch on. One of the things I wrote down was the type of cameras you were using. I mean, were you shooting twenty four frames per second when you were doing the film? Or Was it shooting at a high frame? rate? You mentioned that when you were doing the editing, you, you realized that it was in a, a different frame rate. So how do you how do you, how does that one how does that work? Yeah,
1: it, it, well, we were shooting on this camera called the Panasonic D V one hundred A, which it was sort of a fake 24-frame thing. It was kind of this weird... I can't even remember exactly how to describe it. It was sort of... And this is where the problem was. was They had two 24-frame settings on the camera, and I think we used the wrong one um, <laughs> when, we, when we did it. We used the one that was sort of... Did this thing where it would... It was shooting in 30 frames, but would sort of pull down to 24 for post. I don't even remember exactly how it worked, but it was why we chose this exact camera. And the camera, by the way, we bought the camera because we had to be, you know, we never knew when we were going to be able to shoot because it was like whenever the actors were available because everybody was working on it for free. So it was whenever the actors were available, whenever we could steal a location. So it wasn't like we could rent the camera because we never knew exactly what days we were going to be doing it. So we bought the camera and that was half of the $10,000 budget right there. I think most of the $10,000 budget... Half of it was the camera, another few grand was the editing equipment, and then the rest was basically just food to feed people and a little bit of fake blood. That's basically where the whole budget went. But yeah, it was – theoretically, we were shooting at 24 frames and editing at 24 frames, and somehow in the process of that, I did something wrong, and I don't even remember exactly what it was. I mean, this is the problem with – you know, essentially on this movie – I was a one-man band with a couple of exceptions. It was really a three-man band. I mean, it was me, my friend Forrest, who ran the camera, and then my friend Ward, who uh, ran the sound. But, you know, none of it. Forrest was definitely the most technically adept of the three of us. But Ward Ward and I really didn't have a clue what we were doing technically. We were just kind of learning as we went. And that, again create a lot of headaches to the point that I now, I made so many mistakes now, I don't even remember exactly what the mistakes were.
0: So let's just recap once again, something we talked about the first time five years ago, and that was the distribution deal that you got for the film. You mentioned earlier in this episode that you, you were able to get into Blockbuster. Um, I know the movie was available for quite a while, and it might still be, but we're, we're we're more focused on the Blu-ray release for this episode, but it was available on some streaming platforms. Tell me about the decision to get it on Blu-ray. So distribution deal, talk about the streaming platforms, And then the decision to put it on Blu-ray.
1: The initial distributor for the movie was a company called Maverick Entertainment. And it's funny because we went around, we kicked around this horror film festival circuit for a while and didn't really get any interest from distributors in the movie. You know, I think largely having to do with its a lot of its technical shortcomings and things. I submitted it to this film festival in Delray Beach, California. Or Delray Beach, Florida, I'm sorry. That I don't even think exists anymore, the Delray Beach Film Festival. And I think the only reason I submitted it is because they uh there was no submission fee. I think it was free to submit. So I was like, well, I was submitting to any film festival where I didn't have to pay to get it in. And we got it into this film festival, and I came down to Delray Beach with the movie and discovered that it was completely the wrong audience for the movie. I mean, the, the median age at this film festival, the audience members, I think, was about 85. And then the whole time I was there, I felt like I was in the middle of that movie, Cocoon. And when we showed the movie, I thought it was a complete disaster. It showed the audience was there were 6 people in the audience and 3 of them walked out so uh i thought well okay this is a big there wasn't this was not really worth doing but it turned out that one person who did see it there worked for this distributor maverick entertainment that was based in florida and maverick was and is run by this guy doug schwab he used to be a buyer for blockbuster video so he decided he wanted to switch sides and go into the distribution business because he knew what video stores wanted and and all that so anyway he i guess saw a uh you know he saw a market for this movie and we sold it to him out of the, the film festival and you know and and made Made back my dad's money and probably a little bit extra, which, you know, nowadays, I think for a movie like that, you would never get any kind of advance from a distributor. But this was still in the days where he knew he was going to be able to get this into all the blockbuster videos. And he got into all the Best Buys and everything, too. I mean, there was still like a robust retail DVD market. So he knew he was going to be able to make a certain amount of money on this. So I think he bought it from us for something like 30000 bucks, which probably was about even with what we had spent by that. Cause even you know, the movie cost $10,000, then all the various expenses of taking it to film festivals and all that kind of stuff. I think we got, I think we made a little bit of a profit. So again, went into all the blockbusters, winning all the best buys, which I felt like at the time was, you know, pretty good for what was essentially a, almost a glorified home movie. And then he, uh, eventually I think, you know, he had it for something like 10 years was the license that, you know, he had it for 10 years and then the rights would revert back to me. And like you were saying somewhere, In the course of that 10 years, I think he ended up putting it on Amazon Prime and iTunes and a few places like that, you know, where it did it did pretty well. And once the rights reverted back to me, um, you know, we had never done a i kind of wanted there to be you know even though i keep complaining about the technical quality of it and all that stuff it's still a movie that i'm really proud of in a lot of ways i mean i again i really like the script i like a lot of the performances i think it's a pretty entertaining movie and so i wanted there to be a kind of um definitive edition of it out because the dvd that came out uh was even in the it was the days when they weren't all properly mastered for widescreen televisions i mean that's the other thing that's changed so fast when bad reputation first came out everybody's tvs were still square so when you watch that d that old dvd on a widescreen tv now it's stretched out and you know it's not gonna look right so i want to do a blu-ray and this is the you know the biggest change that's happened in the industry um, well among others since i first made bad reputation is that now you can kind of as an independent filmmaker you can kind of do it yourself distribution a little mainly because of amazon so you know, if you're an independent filmmaker, you don't need a distributor to put your movie on Amazon Prime or Amazon Video. You can do it. There's something called Amazon Video Direct. And you can see so you can put your movie on Amazon Prime streaming and, you know, and all that. And you can also create your own Blu-rays and DVDs. So I decided to so the Blu-ray that's on Amazon right now, which is the only place you can buy it. You know, that is something I created. Basically, I took the movie and up it to HD so that it when you know, made it so that it would play properly on widescreen televisions and all that stuff and uh, created my own Blu-ray, you know, through Amazon. And so my, my idea was to have a kind of definitive version of the movie that would look right. And also, I wanted to kind of provide a little bit of context for people to know to know this sort of history of it that we've been talking about so that they kind of know why it looks the way it does, what it is, you know, how how we came to uh, to make it the way we did and so, you know, so I recorded a new commentary track. And then also the movie I discovered a few years ago that there's there's this great feminist film critic named Alexandra Heller-Nichols who wrote a book on rape revenge movies. And I was, to my shock and delight, Bad Reputation was one of the movies that was in there alongside I Spent on Your Grave and Abel Farrar's Ms. 45 and Ingmar Bergman's The Virgin Spring and all these movies. And she she had written a pretty thoughtful analysis of bad reputation and, and not entirely positive i mean there were, she had criticisms of the movie but i thought it was like a very thoughtful well-reasoned uh critique and so i thought well i'm gonna do a commentary myself but then i also asked alexander to do a commentary so there would be a sort of critical historical perspective on the movie so i kind of put those two things together and created the blu-ray and sort of put it up on amazon video direct myself and that's Right now, that's the only way the movie's available. I kind of pulled it from the streaming stuff just because I wanted – I kind of wanted this Blu-ray version to be the version that people watch for a little while. But we'll probably put it back up on – it'll probably back up on streaming and all those kind of things um, again in a few months.
0: And, and for those listening, in this episode, show notes, there is a direct link that you can click on that will bring you right to the page where you can find the uh, the Blu-ray for Bad Reputation. So, Jim, before we wrap this up, is there, is there, any, is there anything you want the listeners to know – that are going into this film?
1: I don't know if there's anything to say about it beyond what I have. I mean, I think, again, I think the best way to prepare people for the sort of context of what, you know, in terms of like judging the movie on its own terms or getting, you know, again, I I always go back to, it's basically, I spit on your grave meets she's all that, which is, Mm -hmm. you know, not two movies that most people would think go together. But uh, I kind of kind of represents in a weird
0: way where my taste was at the time. One of the things I loved about, the movie was the fact that, it, and I think Jim, you'll remember this. There was a period when I was, this was probably, this would have been, we talked in 2000 and late 2014, and I think I watched Bad Reputation either a few weeks after that or maybe the first of, of January 2015. And listeners, there's nothing better in this world when you're watching a movie to have the ability to reach out to the, direct, to the director and ask questions. And literally when I was watching the movie, Jim was getting a flurry of emails. From me. Hey, real quick, I have a question about this. I have a question about that. Is that a wig? You know, and it was it was so awesome to be able to get these answers in real time while I was watching the movie. So, I am looking forward to watching this on Blu-ray. I'm looking forward to listening to the commentary tracks and uh, Jim, I mean, thanks for being on here. Thanks for talking about the movie and uh, I can't wait to talk again. No, my pleasure. I really appreciate the uh, the support. Absolutely. All right. And if people want to follow you, website, social media, where can they do that?
1: Uh, My website is jimhemphillfilms.com. I try to keep that updated with any, you know, any filmmaking stuff, any, the interviews I do with directors for different places. uh, And then I'm on Twitter at Jimmy Hempill.
0: And listeners, if you want to follow the show, it's... Uh, on Twitter, it's at Dana Buckler Show. If you want to follow me on Twitter, it's at Dana Buckler. Instagram, at The Dana Buckler Show. If you want to email me with questions or comments, it's Show at gmail.com. So for, for Jim Hempel, my name is Dana, and thank you so much for listening.